Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Now for the reading of God's Word, we're going to turn to John chapter 7 and read verses 1 through 39. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But his brothers, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowd concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon, who seeks to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the father's. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem are saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is publicly speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. And Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no one laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go? That we will not find him. He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we look into your word, as I preach your word, that you would anoint my mouth by your spirit and that you would be pleased with every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. The first thing I want to say is a little bit of a pastoral exhortation. Chrysostom has sort of got me fired up this morning. When we as a church put in precautions for COVID, it is meant to make our building safe and hospitable for you. And so those who aren't ill should be here. The ill should stay home. Those who aren't ill and who aren't at risk, really, should be here. And uh, I just want to say that, that um, don't be fearful, don't be fearful, trust God, and this is, this is a day to come to the Lord's table, and you will not receive that means of grace. And I, I don't want that to be your fear that's causing that, right? There may be good reasons for you to stay home, and there may, may be, uh, you know, adequate reasons for you to stay home, but if you are at home and healthy, I would say examine yourself. Now let's give attention to this passage. First thing that we should notice in this passage is that Jesus, Jesus was avoiding certain sections of Judea because those, those sections of Judea were hostile toward him. He did not rush into those sections with a martyr complex, and he did not feel obligated to uh, throw caution to the wind, right? But he trusted in God's providential care. Now, eventually, he, even in this story, he goes right into the heart of Judea, right? But, but even in this statement, it seems that he's willing to um, look at the circumstances, right? And... Uh, he avoided those areas. During the time of the Reformation, throughout the history of the church, there has been a debate about whether Christians should flee in times of persecution. Do you know that? There's been a lot of ink spilled on whether or not Christians should flee during times of persecution. 
And Luther and Calvin and men like that um, said, yeah, you should flee. We have examples of it in Scripture. We have Paul fleeing from one city to the next. We have Jesus here um, not going into Judea because it was dangerous for, for, for him. Um, you remember when I taught on Cotton Mather, you, you know, whether or not you should be inoculated for smallpox was hotly debated. On one side, there, was, there were those folks who said you shouldn't be inoculated because that's like to subvert God's providence. You should just open yourself up to everything, right? Uh, along with those, with other passages, we, um, in Scripture, we receive an answer to those questions of whether we should flee danger in this passage. Jesus avoided those areas that were hostile toward him. He did not go there because they were seeking to kill him, it says. So this action was not an attempt to remove himself from his Father's will, but it was an application of sanctified wisdom to the situation. He was sent for a purpose, and being killed on that day in the fields by some rogue Jews was not the way this was going to happen. His time had not yet come. So he doesn't go into those areas, but then he does go. <laughs> you know, the statement is here that he, for a time, did not go there because of the danger, but then, by faith, he goes right into the belly of the beast. Okay, so first point there. Yet, given their hostility, given the Jews' hostility right now, and the Jewish leaders in particular toward Jesus, there was a coming dilemma. The Feast of Booths, one of the three main feasts of the Jewish year, right? The three pilgrim feasts. It was approaching and all the males of Israel were required to attend that festival in Jerusalem. By the law, all the males were required to attend. What was the Feast of Booths? It was a, it was a celebration of thanksgiving to God uh, for the harvest. It was a commemoration of God's guidance through the wilderness wanderings. One of the actions that would take place during the festival is that they would have the ceremony of pouring, of the pouring of water as a, as a commemoration of the water that miraculously came out of the rock at, at Meribah. Now, would Jesus go up to Jerusalem given the danger? Well, the disciples think that he should, or these brothers, as they're called, uh, thinks that he should, and they criticize him for not seeming in a hurry to attend, right? They, they make the statement, leave here, go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your work, which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This, this is not friendly speech. This is sort of provocative. They are, they are pushing him Toward this, and of course, the next phrases and his brothers didn't believe in him at this time, right? So whether this is his family or whether it goes beyond his family, these words here are goads to Jesus, and they are not. They're like, look, you've been doing these wonderful things, and now you're gonna you're gonna hold back. Go out, do it publicly. You know, this is your big chance to to make a name for yourself. Go do these things publicly. They're essentially guilt-tripping him into going um, by saying that if he wants to be known publicly, 
he, he better not avoid this very public event. It would be wrong of him to hide when, this, when his whole purpose is to be known. I think they want him to go to Jerusalem and dazzle the crowds with some kind of miracle. They want him to pursue his fame. They want him to flex his muscles and show off. They do not yet have a conception of the Messiah as right at all. They don't have a conception of the Messiah as a suffering servant who would die an ignoble death on a Roman cross. They didn't get it, and and that's the point brought home by verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. The members of his own household, of his own family, were not believing him to be the Messiah. And so, uh, this counsel to go up and, and make a show seems to be a kind of ridicule of him and a ridicule of his mission. They all think he's crazy. And so they're hoping for some... I mean, they're, maybe they're hoping he goes up to the Jerusalem and flops. Right? Being jealous, like Joseph's brothers, being jealous of him. Jesus' response to their goading is, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Two things from this, that response. First, Jesus states that his time has not yet come. What does this mean? Is, is it not time to go up to the feast yet, or is it not time to show himself to the whole world, or even time for him to die as the Messiah? I think we'll take the simplest explanation. It wasn't his time to go up to the feast yet. right? The, Jesus is speaking, those Jesus is speaking to can go up whenever they'd like. He, on the other hand, determines that it's not his time yet to go up to the feast. Right, so there's been some controversy about this. Like, did Jesus lie to them? Like, he, he said he wasn't going, and then he goes? Well, no, it's just he, he wasn't going then. He wasn't going up yet. His time would come to go up to the feast. But when we hear that time to come, we're, we're, we always think Jesus is speaking of his crucifixion. And I think it's just simple to say that he's saying, it's not my time to go up yet. Go ahead, guys. Go ahead of me. He's responding to their goading by saying, not yet. And he had reason not to go yet because there was danger there from the Sanhedrin. Second, notice that Jesus says to these followers, the world cannot hate you because it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Now he is assuming they are not believing. He lumps them in with the world, those that are talking with him. They, being of the world, are liked by the world, but he, because he speaks truth, is hated by the world. There's a, there's a quick lesson there, isn't there? Things will never be different than that. When we speak truth, the response we most often receive is one of hostility. So it is with Jesus. So it will be with us. If we testify that anyone's deeds are evil, right, we will be hated. Say something about the wickedness of abortion. And what will the response be? Well, you'll be hated, especially if you're standing on a college campus. Right? Say something wicked about Marxism. What will the response be? 
say something about Jesus being the only way to heaven, the singular only way to heaven is Jesus Christ. And people are not going to throw you a party. Right? Say something about God being the creator of all things visible and invisible. People think you're wacko. Right? As long as Christians follow in the footsteps of, of Christ, testifying to the truth of the word and the corruption that is in the world will meet with hostility and hatred. Peace with the world, Calvin says, can only be purchased by a wicked consent to vices. Let me say that again. Peace with the world can only be purchased by a wicked consent to vices. Right? If you want peace with the world, you have to buy what they're selling. Right? And you have to take those vices and make them what you believe. That's how to have peace with the world. Right? And so any, any church, any Christian church that, that has a, a comfortable peace with the world, guess what's coming forth from that pulpit? Vices, not virtues. The only peace the Christian will have with the world will be at the cost of consenting to wickedness and the things God abominates. The activity of the world outside of Christ is an attempt to celebrate wickedness and flaunt rebellion before the God they know is there. And only the man who has the Spirit of God set him free from his bondage to sin is able to, to escape such an occupation. That's the only person. So Jesus stays in Galilee waiting for the right time to go up to Jerusalem, says the world is, hates me because, they're de- because I say their deeds are evil. And he's waiting. Verse 10, they went up and then Jesus, determining the right time, went up in an appropriate manner given the danger. He goes secretly, quietly, without drawing attention to himself presently. That would be a good reason to go by himself and not with a group of people. Right? He, just, he wants to sneak in. The danger is clear. The Jews are walking about saying, where is he? Where is he? We know he's here. There was a buzz about in the crowds. Everyone is looking this way and that way. Some are saying good things about him. Some are saying bad things about him. Everybody is forming judgments about him. But all of this, they are doing very quietly because even the crowds are afraid of the Sanhedrin and their henchmen. Then in the midst of the feast, When the feast is about halfway over, Jesus makes his way to the very center of attention. He goes to the temple courts. There he opens his mouth, right, and and begins to bless those Jews there with a sermon. The word of God from the word of God himself, right? Opening his mouth to bless them. The words are glorious and the Jews are astonished that this untaught, uneducated man at least he hadn't gone to their schools, right? Could speak with such authority. Jesus tells them the source of his knowledge. He is not just making stuff up off the top of his head. He, in fact, has a teacher. He, in fact, has a source of his knowledge. No, he's, he is simply conveying to them what someone else told him, what someone else taught him. Who had told him what to say? What school had Jesus been to? What, what, uh, what was he, who was he taught by? He was taught by his Father. His Father in heaven. God Almighty, the first person of the Trinity. 
My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Right? It was the joy of the Son to make what the Father had given to him, to take what the Father had given to him and, and, and speak those words to these fallen, hostile, sinful souls. He's richly blessing them with the words of Almighty God. And he says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God, whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. The undercurrent of all of his talking about the source of his words is this. If you reject what I am saying, you are not just rejecting me, but you're rejecting my teacher. You're rejecting my father. You're rejecting the one you claim to have as a father. If you reject me, you reject him. Notice what Jesus says about learning from him. The one who recognizes the truth of his teaching will be the one aiming to do God's will. If you do not care about doing God's will, think about this. If you do not care about doing God's will, you will never come to a knowledge of the truth. Right? If you do not have a true desire to obey God's will as it is found in his words, you may have knowledge, but it will not be true knowledge. It will be worldly wisdom. It will be a kind of wisdom that is homegrown rather than derived from God himself. Only as the Holy Spirit takes this knowledge and makes it alive in our hearts will there be true life. But nonetheless, there will be no true knowledge where there is no pursuit of God's will. You must pursue God. Jesus says that a self-appointed prophet would not be interested in giving someone else the glory for their teaching. Jesus is always pointing away from himself to his Father. These Jewish leaders, though, were the ones who loved, right? The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, what did they love? They loved greetings in the marketplaces, right? They loved the seats of honor. They prayed in order to be seen. They were envious toward Jesus and the crowds that follow him. Everything they did was motivated by their goal to maximize their own glory. Jesus, on the other hand, was submitting to someone whom he desired to glorify. That, too, is a mark of true teaching, right? Does the one teaching submit to something, someone? If your pastor cares more about his own glory and recognition and position and prosperity, he does not have the same method as Jesus Christ. That's not what Jesus preached for. That's not why Jesus was motivated. He taught so that his father might receive glory. Someone else might receive glory. That people would look past him to his glorious father. And the pastor should teach so that his savior receives that same glory. Points toward him. Every pastor is tempted to steal glory from Jesus Christ. Right? He's tempted to build his own kingdom. And that has been a scourge to us. It's been a scourge on the church through all the ages, right? But Jesus, Jesus always points away from himself to some 
someone that he says is greater. Verse 19, Jesus gets confrontational with those seeking to kill him. He says, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Those are fighting words, right? Moses was their, was their daddy, right? And, and did, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, you who speak so highly of Moses and the law, you do not keep the law. And the reason I know that you don't keep the law is you're trying to kill me. You're trying to kill me. And of course they deny it. You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? What's your problem, man? Jesus responds, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? And so what is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is hearkening back two chapters ago, right? That time when he was healing that man at the pool of Bethesda. Chapter 5 of John. Remember, after he heals the man, we read this. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They can't get past that point. At that point, there is no... There is no good thinking of Jesus that's going to come from the Pharisees, right? Since that time when they determined that he was breaking the Sabbath, which he was not doing in this act of mercy, they had sought to kill him. So precious was their tradition of scrupulous and extra-biblical laws surrounding the Sabbath that they lost sight of one of the pillars of the moral law, right? They would, they would so tenaciously pr- protect their traditions that they would be happy to kill for it. Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy. That is utter corruption to protect what is not biblical and violate what is biblical to protect what is not biblical. That's the Pharisees. It's wickedness. These self-proclaimed protectors of the law are actually just haters of the law. They're just lawbreakers. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment, he concludes. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody has done you wrong and then they can do nothing right in your eyes? They do one thing wrong to you and they just become the worst sort of demon that has ever existed. Right? We all struggle with that. We all struggle with that. And that's why Scripture is filled with exhortations for us to forgive one another. Right? Because our temptation is to completely vilify those who, who um, stub our toe in some little way. Right? Someone can say one unkind thing to us, and before very long, everything they do is inspired by what we assume is a heart fully given over to the evil one. Husbands and wives get into cycles like that. And unless forgiveness comes 
in and breaks the cycle, it can lead to and will lead to the destruction of that relationship. When we have so vilified somebody, especially a Christian brother or sister, that we cannot have anything to do with them, well, that is when we need to pray that God would give us the, the ability to judge, not by appearance, but with righteous judgment. Right? You know, should I bring up Joe Biden? What about him? Can he do anything right? We will not allow him to have any good ideas or right opinions because we judge by appearance and not by the truth. Shall I bring up the Democratic Party, right? Nothing good could come out of the Democratic Party. We say they're just, they're the spawn of Satan. Right? It's because we judge by appearance and not with righteous judgment. Right? Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath and the Pharisees' judgment was that he needed to die. Right? They were, they were prejudiced against his person and that made them <clears throat> lose sight of the truth. You've done this. And I've done this, and we will continue to be tempted to do it. Therefore, pray that you would not judge according to appearance, but with, with righteousness. Fight this sin. Then in our text, verses 25 to 20, this is a long, I never preach this many verses, right? Here we go. I mean, let's keep going. Then in our text, in verse 25 to 27, it's good if you have a Bible open and following along so you can refer to it. We get some dialogue from a different group of people in the crowd. These are the people who are confused as to who Jesus is. They say, is this not that man whom they are seeking to kill? They see what the Pharisees are trying to do to Jesus. They know they are trying to kill him. It's obvious to them. They look around and they're like, the, the Pharisees really don't like this guy. Look, he's speaking publicly. Next they say, look, he's, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. So there's a ton of things in there to unpack. Here's what I believe this section means. These people are speaking... Perhaps there's some lower order of the Pharisees who, who know about the plot that they're trying to kill him. They're astonished that Jesus is standing before them and that the Pharisees are just letting Jesus speak. They're not doing anything to stop it. He, he's speaking and the Pharisees are silent. Right? Does this mean... And then the second phrase is essentially this, and it doesn't read well in the English. It really means, does this mean that the Pharisees have changed their mind about him and really think that he's now the Christ? Their silence seems to make it seem as if they think he's the Christ now. If he weren't the Christ, they would shut him up. right? Do they actually think he's the Christ? But they know that that can't be the case because they know where Jesus is from. This Jesus guy is from Nazareth. He's just a Nazarene. There, would, there were two theories about where Jesus would come from. The conspiracy theorists said that he would just appear out of nowhere. That's what the conspiracy theorists said. No scriptural basis, just something they read on Facebook. Right? Others, based upon scripture, said it would be Bethlehem. Good support for that, Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth 
for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Clearly speaking of an eternal God coming in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That, indeed, was the official position of the Sanhedrin. They believed the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, but Jesus, being from Nazareth, had to be ruled out. Of course, we know the rest of the story. Uh, They may have too. It would not have been hard for them to ascertain the fact that Jesus was indeed from Bethlehem. They stubbornly would not uh, believe it, um, even if it had been told to them, even if it had been proven to them. The Pharisees, these experts in Scripture, could have corrected the people and taught them what their position was, right? Christ could have affirmed Christ even could have affirmed that, well, hey, I am from Bethlehem. You guys think I'm from Nazareth. But knowing the unbelieving hearts of the Pharisees, he does not. If Jesus would have affirmed his birthplace, they, they would have changed their view, right, to contradict Jesus. That's what they would have done. Which is what many people do when their desires conflict with what they read in Scripture. God would have us conform to him, but those who have real faith exalt their own feelings and desires above the word of God. That's what the Pharisees would have done. These experts already, they would have practiced invalidating the word of God for their own traditions. Now, onward, while the Pharisees stand there silent, perhaps by God's supernatural shutting of their mouths, Jesus cries out in the temple, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Think about what he is saying here. He has been testifying to them as we read in the previous chapter that he is from heaven. He has come down from the Father. They should know that now and believe, even if because of the miracles he has done. Then in the temple courts, in the very place God met with his people, in the place where they sacrificed animals to atone for their sins as a, as a picture of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, in the very place that they, the very center of their boast, the Jews boast, the temple, the temple, the temple. Jesus says, you don't know the Father. You don't know the Father. The rulers, the Pharisees, the skeptics, the curious, the believers, the disciples all hear him say this. It is a bomb going off in the temple. Right, That was his father's house. That was where he was to be known. And Jesus had cleansed that filthy temple. And those who ruled over that temple are told that they have no knowledge of the Father. Who has a knowledge of the Father? Jesus does. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. The one sent by the Father is present, and the message he gives them is that they do not know the Father. And the proof of that lack of knowledge is their resistance and hardness of heart toward him. They know so much and and nothing at all. And this is too much for them. He's burst all their bubbles. He's condemned the rulers before the gathered men of Israel. He's, 
He's really humiliated them, and so they lunge for him, and they seek to kill him on the spot. But given that this was all being orchestrated by his father, who intended to redeem those who were his enemies, they were not able to seize him. His hour had not yet come. The hour would come. He would be seized and crucified, but that hour had not yet come. There was fruit that day, though, you see in this text by his preaching. But many of the crowd believed in him. Many in the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? There's, that's essentially saying he's, he's done a lot. He's performed a lot of signs. I mean, how could someone come that performed more than this? Right? Look at what he's done. He's turned water to wine. He's cleansed the temple. He's, he's healed the nobleman's son. He's, he's healed the man at Bethsaida. He's fed the 5,000. He's overruled the forces of nature by walking on water. What more do we need to see? Right? Many that day said that they had seen enough and they believed. His preaching had led many to murmur and complain that day, but for others it was the beginning of their life dedicated to Christ. For some there that day, they had been given ears to hear. The Pharisees are incredibly mad, especially as they see some going after him and believing in him. They now send some officers to him to arrest him. And Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. For when he said this, until he left this earth, it would be, you know, from, the, from when he said that, where I am, you cannot come. From when he said that until he left this earth was about six months. We've got six more months. He will have ascended to heaven after accomplishing all that the Father gave him to do. And to heaven, those rulers cannot come. To the proud rulers, he says, you will seek me and will not find me. To the people, he says, seek and you will find. To those proud rulers, seek me and you cannot come where I go. To the people, he says, seek and you will find. There's a point at which the continued stubborn rejection of Christ hardens the heart. And like Esau, even those who desire to inherit the blessing will find no place for repentance, though seeking for it with tears. Do not harden your heart toward the Lord. Come today before your heart is so hardened against Him, right, that you find repentance is impossible even while you desire it. Some want to repent, but so love their sins and are so deeply committed to their sins, so deeply intertwined with their sins that they just won't trouble with repentance, though they even have a part of them that wants to repent. Because they feel the misery of their sin on some level. The Jews respond to Jesus' statement with more clueless guesses. Is he going to the dispersion among the Greeks? How will he go somewhere? We can't find him. Then on the last day of the feast, the feast where they commemorated the water God provided for them out of the rock in the wilderness, Jesus teaches them about his mission. Right? He himself would be like that water that refreshed them when they thought they would die. Only better than that. 
He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now those are glorious words, aren't they? Very precious to those who have thirsted and then had their thirst slaked. Right? What is this thirst Jesus is talking about here? Is it not, it, it certainly is not the thirst of our mouths, the thirst of our bodies. It's the thirst for spiritual things. It is, as Ryle puts it, anxiety of soul, it's conviction of sin, it's desire of pardon, it's longing after peace of conscience. It is the sinful man longing for a good conscience. It is the longing of the heart for peace, for joy, for satisfaction, for which the world, right, the world provides a thousand placebos. That's really what the world is after. And they, they provide a thousand different placebos. And many people feel satisfied with what the world offers because there is a placebo effect. You know, it is knowing that you need help because you have sinned against others and against God. This is the thirst we're talking about here. It is the mindset of the Philippian jailer who asked, What must I do to be saved? Ryle on thirst says, such thirst as this unhappily is known by few. All ought to feel it, and all would feel it if they were wise. Sinful, mortal, dying creatures as we all are, with souls that will one day be judged and spend eternity in heaven and hell, there lives not the man or woman on earth who ought not to thirst after salvation, and yet many thirst after everything except salvation. Money. Pleasure, honor, rank, self-indulgence. These are the things they desire. There is no clearer proof of the fall of man and the utter corruption of human nature than the careless indifference of most people about their souls. No wonder the Bible calls the natural man blind, asleep, and dead. When so few can be found who are awake, alive, and athirst about their salvation. When do you know a man is thirsting in the sense that Jesus is speaking of? He begins to care about his soul. For the first time, he begins to care about his soul and, and see that his sins have earned for him hell. He begins to be alive to spiritual things and realizes that he is in a terrible predicament. Right? I remember this during my conversion. Just overwhelmed by my sins. What do I do? That was the beginning of a thirst for my, my soul's well-being. So those who are thirsty are, are told to do something. They are told to come to Jesus and drink. Come to Jesus and drink. There is some way to, to, to get rid of that thirst. There is some source of peace of conscience. There's a way to be satisfied. And the Son of God said, come to me and find that living water. And the mechanism that is used to ingest that living water is what? It's faith. Faith. That one thing. That's the mechanism to ingest Jesus in that living water is faith. Right? It is believing in Jesus Christ. It is acknowledging that He is and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. 
right? It is to believe that he rose from the dead and after dying on the cross for particular sins, right? It is to see all that as the Father's love for us even while we were still enemies. It's all very simple, isn't it? It's all very simple. Again, Ryle, really to feel the sinfulness of sin and to thirst and really come to Christ and believe are the two steps which lead to heaven. But they are mighty steps. Thousands are too proud and careless to take them. Few less thinks and still fewer believe. Right? Come to Christ and believe. Christ is put before you today as a Savior. Right? He has said to you, come to me and drink. He has offered you the most glorious gift you could ever receive, the forgiveness of sins, and said to just take this gift by faith. And when you do so, God promises that from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You will find by faith in Jesus Christ that your thirst is assuaged, that you are satisfied. You are completely satisfied. After we run and can hardly speak for want of water, that first draft of water, you know, is so satisfying. Your thirst, your thirsty soul will find that same satisfaction in believing in Jesus Christ. Finally drowning out all the voices of those who tell you Jesus Christ is just your wishful thinking. And believing what is written in Scripture is absolute and essential truth. What is written is happened and is the only way, right? That Christmas is more than, than cookies and gifts and decorated trees and garish displays of lights. But it is the entrance of God into this world to redeem a sinful people and gather them into his household for an eternal Sabbath of feasting. The Christian, not the cultural Christian, the Christian. The true believing Christian has found Christ to be more than satisfying. Right? When he aches from pain, he finds Christ to be his healing balm. When he suffers the anguish of lost friends and family and wealth, he finds Christ is his riches. When he weeps over his sins, he finds that there's compassion and solace and forgiveness with Jesus. When he fears for his future, he finds in Jesus a, a, a fixed inheritance. When he despairs as his days are coming to a close, he finds in Christ a brightness that illuminates the whole dark universe with his light. That's Jesus Christ. They have tasted peace and hope and comfort since they first believed, which with all their doubts and fears, they would not exchange for anything in the world. They have found grace according to their need and strength according to their days. In themselves and their own hearts, they have often been disappointed, but they have never been disappointed in Christ. That's true of the true believer. And given verse 39, the last verse, the glory of all those things I've just mentioned is this. The living water that comes by faith in Jesus Christ is nothing other than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, coming to live within you. But 
This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. What glory. I mean, what glory. God within you. I mean, why are we so depressed? Why are we so unsatisfied? God has come to live within us by his Spirit. We take the Spirit with us wherever we go. We take the name of Christ with us wherever we go. Where can we go where we are outside of the presence of God? When he's within us. It's mind-boggling. And there he is within us, the Spirit, waging war against our remaining corruption. He's filling our hearts with the peace that surpasses understanding when we pray. He's, He's crying out for us in prayer when we can't form the words. Comforting us in every affliction. And so once again, I say, I say, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. So come to Christ and drink. Right? All of you who are despairing or aching or grieving or casting about for satisfaction, come to Christ and drink from his spirit Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Amen?